The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. I love this song, and, and particularly I want to point out the last verse. And this is what I expect to do one day. I don't know exactly how it will happen, but uh, that last verse, it says in about the middle of the verse, it says, my soul filled with rapture shall shout over the grave and triumph in death in the mighty and save. You know, death in the child of God is a victory. It's not a defeat. We always say, well, he lost the battle to cancer or whatever else may have had. But, but let me tell you, you didn't lose the battle. If you're a child of God, that's the greatest triumph of your life. That's the, the day of our death is the best day of our lives as children of God. And I don't, I'm not ready to die today. I don't, you know, Lord, leave me here a little bit longer uh, where I can be of some use to my family and to the church and the kingdom of God. And, and I want to do that. You know, we all have that desire to live within us. But the truth is, is when we come down to the day of our death, that will be the best day of our lives because that will be a day unlike that. What a day that will be. That's, that's the day that we sang about earlier. Austin, if you would come up and lead this, my voice is in pretty bad shape this morning. Number 604, if you stand on the last verse, let's continue. So do me the soul. Oh. 
His mighty love. Sing of His mighty love, mighty to save. Brother Roger, will you lead us in prayer? Most precious and heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for blessing us in so many numerous ways, yes. Lord. We thank you for allowing us to be able to be here today. Amen. As we think of those that are in need, Lord, that's absent from our midst, Lord, we yes. pray for them. Pray that you would comfort them in a mighty way. Yes. Father, we thank you for that you are the rock that we stand on, yes. Father. And thankful, Lord, that we can lean on the cross and Amen. what it meant and what it stands for, Lord. Yes. That you rose again after three days that we have everlasting life, Mr. Father, with you. Yes. Father, we pray for this church. We pray for each member. We pray for each family Amen. that's represented here today, Lord. Yes, Lord. We just pray and, and give thanks at the same time. Amen. Pray for forgiveness for our sins, which we are many, we know. And Father, forgive us for them. We pray for us in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. 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 Appreciate that good prayer and appreciate the opportunity to be here, stand before you for a little bit. I beg an interest in your prayers as I can try to preach to you this morning, continuing our study on the life of David. David is the only man that's mentioned in the Word of God as a man after God's own heart. And as I say each time we start this series, we know that our measuring stick is not another man, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, but, but we'll always fall short of that. Uh, we should strive for that. We should strive to be like Christ. That, that should be our goal. That's what Christian means. It means, some, it means Christ-like. Uh, and, and certainly, uh, you never see in the Word of God, by the way, where anybody calls themselves a Christian. Uh, we're see, we see in the Word of God where they, the disciples were called Christians by others who saw their, their manner of life and their lifestyle and their... Uh, the way they uh, followed the Word of God, and they were called Christ-like. They were called Christians. And I'm not saying in this day, I understand there's the Christian world and there's the Muslim world, and we in general are Christians, and it's appropriate to, to say from time to time, yes, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Muslim or some other, or Buddhist or anything like that. But, but my point is this, is that primarily it should be others that call us Christians because they should see our lifestyle and the way we live and say, hey, there's something different about those folks. You know, um, they, they certainly say that from time to time about uh, us as primitive Baptists. They say, there's something different about those folks. <laughs> you know, and I, I understand that. But there should be now. There should be something uh, different about what we believe in the hope. You know, that's what Peter was talking about when he said that uh, we're to sanctify the Lord God always in our heart and be ready always to give an answer to any man that asketh thee of the hope that lieth within thee and that that presupposes that that there are those that will see you and say and, and recognize wait a minute he's got a hope or she's got a hope that i don't have i don't understand where that's tell me about that hope now i understand that no man that's never not been born again is going to be interested in those kinds of things but there are many children of god in the world who've been born of the spirit who don't understand what they have in christ and that's our job is to tell them that we were to be called Christians. People are to look at us and say there's something different about them. Now, uh, Christ, as I said, is our measuring rod. That's what we are to measure our lives by. We're not to compare ourselves among ourselves. The Bible says that's not wise because you'll always find somebody better than you and you'll get into a little bit of despair and then you'll always maybe find somebody worse than you and you'll be lifted up with pride, you know. So 
so certainly our measuring rod should always be Christ. We should always understand that we fall short of that in everything that we do. And we should never compare ourselves among ourselves in the sense of say, well, I'm better than her and I'm worse than him and that sort of thing. But one of the things that the Bible does for us is it gives us examples of, of real men and women who live real lives as sinners that were saved by grace, as uh, men of like passions as, of, as we are, that we might be encouraged a little bit when we read about their lives. And, and this is one of those men. David the king, David the shepherd boy who became the king, uh, was, we're told was a man after God's own heart. And that's something that's interesting to me. And that's something that I think we ought to look at as, as we walk in this life because if he was a man after God's own heart, and I desire to be a man after God's own heart. I ought to look at what he did and see if I can be a little bit like him because that should give us some help and guide us. And that's what we've been doing for this. I believe this is about the 13th or 14th message on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. And this past two times that we preached about him, we preached about David the Deliverer. David the Deliverer. We saw where he delivered uh, a city named Keilah. And we're, we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel chapter 24 this morning, if you'd like to turn there. We saw where he delivered a city called Keilah uh, from, uh, from the Philistines. And, he, um, and then they turned around and they, they betrayed him to Saul. But, uh, but then we saw in the, next, the rest of chapter 23 how he delivered himself and his men from Saul out there in the wilderness in a place where really there was not a whole lot of help for him in an earthly sense, but the Lord delivered him, the Lord protected him in a providential way. And then last time we began to talk about how that David delivers his enemy, Saul. How David delivers his enemy, Saul. And that's in chapter 24. And let's just begin reading in verse 1. And it came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. And then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. Now, we kind of laid the groundwork last time, but let me just remind you what's happening here. This is Saul, uh, to put it nicely, he's going in to answer a call of nature in a cave as he's out there uh, searching for David. And the Bible is, uh, is, is, is very uh, uh, discreet about talking about that sort of thing. And so it says he went in to cover his feet. And, and lo and behold, <laughs> it's the very cave in which David and his men are hiding. You remember now, David's got about 600 men, at least 400, and about 600 men, we believe, by this time uh, with him. And these were not nice men. These were not godly men. These were not men that were uh, excited about serving the Lord. We're told uh, back over in, uh, uh, I believe it was the uh, 22nd chapter, it says that when he escaped to the cave of Adullam, it says in verse 2 that everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him and he became a captain over them them. Now there's some spiritual implications there. I've tried to preach on it before. Uh, David is certainly a type of Christ there and certainly we're in debt, we're indebted, we're discontent here in this life and we flock to the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember this was a literal 
real story. It really happened. And David is here, who is a man after God's own heart, and he's surrounded, as he tells us in the 57th Psalm, I believe it is, he's surrounded by lions. <laughs> no man cared for my soul, he said. He didn't have anybody of like mind in that cave with him. They were all violent, uh, angry, discontented men. And lo and behold, Saul comes into the cave to, to, to take care of his business, and then they're hiding in the cave. And I want you to notice, as we mentioned last time, the temptation that David faced. The temptation. Verse 4, the men of David said, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I'll deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayst doest to him uh, as it shall seem good unto thee. I'm going to tell you something. Those circumstances look like it was time for David to shine. The circumstances presented themselves as such that David, as I would probably do, could easily have taken that as, this is a sign. This is a sign here. You know, isn't that something that we always want to see? I'll never forget when I first surrendered to the call of ministry. I was with an independent Baptist order and uh, had a good friend, Brother Leroy Dutton, who is still a good friend of mine and one of their the preachers among that order and uh, I was talking to Brother Leroy about uh, a church had called me and another church had called me and I said, you know, what do I do, Brother Leroy? I, I, boy, it's hard to figure out where, where the Lord wants you, isn't it? And he said, and he just listened to me and gave me a little advice. He said, Brother Chris, he said, it sure would be nice if he'd just write us a letter, wouldn't it? <laughs> just send it in the mail. I said, yes, sir. It would be so nice if he would do that. And sometimes we, we want to see visibly something that will lead us in the direction that we have to go. I know I've shared this with you, but uh, it's the, and looking back on it, and I, and I understand, you, gotta, you need to understand, I was sincere about this. And I really thought this at the time, but I look back on it like I do about many things in my life and see how dumb it was, okay? But, but I was actually, at one point, uh, I had gone away for a night or two to just kind of pray and see what the Lord's leading was in regard to a particular church situation that I was wanting to decide whether that's where I needed to be. And, and I was at a, at, a, at a hotel and I looked out at the balcony there and said, Lord, I just tell me what I need to do. Lord, I need to know. And there was a groundhog that was running around on the ground down there and there was a light pole right here, okay, in my vision. And that little, the groundhog was on the left side of the light pole. And I said, well, Lord, I tell you what, if it's your will for me to come up here, just let that groundhog go to the right side of the light pole. You know? and, uh, and incidentally, he did, and I still didn't go. So, but, uh, but, uh, so I wasn't really following the sign either. But, you know, I don't believe the Lord's leading us through groundhogs today, okay? I don't believe he's doing that. And signs are not something that we should be seeking. I want you to look in Matthew chapter 16. And we'll see what the Lord himself thinks about seeking signs in our lives. In chapter 16, in verse, uh, uh, verse 1, just begin reading, The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came and tempted, desiring him, that's Jesus, that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O oh, ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but ye cannot discern the signs of the times. And of course, what he's particularly referring to here is that the Lord, that, that they had the Old Testament. The Old Testament had told them what was going to happen. 
Now, it, it was not as clear as we can read it looking back on it, but the Old Testament had said, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and have a son. The Old Testament has said, Thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, out of thee shall come him who will, who will rule the nations. You know, he had told he, all these things that occurred and they had the word of God that had pointed them in the right direction. He said, But you can't discern the signs of the times. Now, listen to verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. So what does the Lord think about signs? He thinks that they're the things that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after, you see? And now what is the problem with a sign? Well, there's several practical problems with a sign. One is, is that uh, just like me in my case, if you're looking for a sign and I kept looking for signs and I found a sign and I made the wrong decision based upon that sign, if you're looking for a sign, you're going to probably find one. <laughs> You know, you, we are, we're just tainted with sin enough. Our minds and the pathways of our brains are just as sinful as, as they were the day, if not more sinful, the day that Adam fell in the garden. We inherited his nature. Our nature taints every decision we make. Our sin nature gets in the way every time we try to make a good decision. And, 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 and we have to always be looking for guidance in some way, and seeking a sign is not the way to do it. Because that is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. Now, why is that? It's because he told us we're not to seek signs. We're to walk by faith. We're to walk by faith. And faith is different than sign. See, faith, faith is, uh, is what can guide us when the circumstances seem to declare that we should do something else. I've been there. You know that. We talked about it. I've been there. Where You know, I, I would not be here at Zion Church today if I were seeking signs. I would not be here today because there was no sign in my mind at the time that what was going to happen at Zion was really going to happen. It just looked like, well, you know, a little dead church dying, nearly dead. And, but the Lord said, hey, you walk by faith. And the other thing is this, is he leads us not by signs, but by his word. Okay. And see, here's the problem with seeking a sign. If David were seeking a sign, if David were looking to his circumstances and listening to his men, who, by the way, did not have any interest in the Word of God, apparently. If he were doing that, this passage would read differently. Verse 4 would, would, uh, uh, verse, uh, four would read at the end, Then David arose and killed Saul and became king. But that's not what David did. And you know why that's not what David did? Because David knew what Romans 12 will eventually tell us. He knew that this was God's way. Romans 12 and verse uh, 19. This is what Romans, this is what the word of God. You know, man says this. It's here the circumstances have presented them. You know, <laughs> I've had this, I've said this. I, I, you know, I always tell you, I hate the fact that I'm the preacher. I have to confess in this situation. Other orders let you confess to me. <laughs> you know, I have to confess to you, okay? I have said this. I have felt this. Somebody does me wrong. Somebody tells a lie or, or, or cuts me off or does something that they, that, you know, that to hurt me. Well, one day, one day, they'll need me for something. You ever been there? <laughs> one day, I'll get my chance. One day, I'll get my, then, you know, and there's a word for it out in some of the religions of the world. It's called karma. Now, we like karma, don't we? Karma is, karma in a sense, karma is somewhat of a biblical concept. And it just says, it's the, it's the, it's the uh, what we've been hearing 
from uh, various preachers at the fellowship meeting, I guess it was, talking about the principle of sowing and reaping, that whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And that's true. There's, there, that's a natural, that's a spiritual and a natural principle in this world. If you plant corn, you're not going to raise okra, okay? You plant corn, it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow corn, you know? You, you plant uh, okra, it's going to raise okra. You plant weeds and thistles, that's what's going to come up, you see? You're sowing and reaping that print. So that karma just simply says that you're going to, you know, what goes around comes around. What, whatever you dish out, you're going to get it one day, okay? See, I like instant karma. <laughs> Brother Buddy, Brother Buddy's talked about watching those YouTube videos where somebody does something to somebody else. And the next, I mean, I saw one recently where a guy pulled a gun, you know, it's road rage, pulls a gun on somebody next to him. I don't think he ever fired a shot. And then, you know, to scare him off. And then next thing you know, he runs down the road about 100 yards and wrecks. You know, I mean, that's instant karma. I like that. You know, that, that just, that gets me fired up. I said, oh yeah, that's what I like to see. The problem is, is that, that that kind of instant karma is not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Amen. See, vengeance is not something that God has given us as a gift. He's given us some gifts, spiritual gifts, love, joy, peace. Read Roman, uh, Galatians 5 and verses 21, 22, and 23 one day. But, right, but this is not a gift He's given men. He didn't give us vengeance. He says, vengeance is mine. And God is a jealous God. He guards what he has jealously. And so what do we do then, preacher? How do we do it? Well, he doesn't leave us without guidance. He says, verse 20, therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. <laughs> now, let me just also say this to you. Don't do like me either and say, Here's the drink. I can't. That's another coal of fire on your head. You know, you don't need to have that attitude either. Okay, you don't need to have that attitude either. I mean, I confess to you, that's human nature. I get that way sometimes. I'm going to do good so that he'll hurt worse one day. You know, but uh, my point is this: we shouldn't have the wrong attitude in dealing with this. But here's what he's telling us. You know, you say, well, preacher, I can't, I can't feel good toward my enemy. He didn't say feel good toward him. We said love him, didn't he? But that's not what love means. Love isn't about a feeling. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, I understand. I, you know, I look at my wife and I love her. I fee have feelings for her. Uh, but whether I do or not, if, she, if, if we get to the point one day where we are so crossed up on things that, that she becomes my enemy and I become her enemy, what do I do about that? I love her anyway. It says, I feed her. I give her to drink. I do for her because love is not a feeling. Love is an action. You see, so I may not be able to feel real well toward my enemy, but I can treat my enemy right. I can do for them. Now, that doesn't mean you invite them in. That doesn't mean I've got to have, you know, somebody that hates me coming into my home and spending the night at my house and trying to bring him into my circle of friends. I can't do that. They don't want that anyway. But I can treat them right when I have opportunity to do it. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Verse 21 says that. Do you know the only way to overcome evil is to do good? You can't, you know, it's just like saying, I'm going to put the fire out with more fire. <laughs> I'm going to set more, now I, I really understand about backfires, I get that, but I'm talking, if you go into a fire and you say, I'm going to throw some gasoline on this fire to put it out. <laughs> Try that sometime, but you better get way back away from it because it ain't going to work, okay? 
The only thing that'll put out fire is water. The only thing that'll put out evil is good. Doing good, you see. So, Saul comes into the cave, and the circumstances are such that it obvious, it's obvious to David's men, and they were egging him on that this is his time. This is time for him to uh, do what, uh, what they know he needs to do, which is to kill Saul and to take over the kingdom just like uh, God had, had told him he would eventually do. These lions, these men that did not care, they were ungodly men. And they were using the word of God, by the way. God had told him he was going to be king. And don't let them fool you, because sometimes ungodly men will use the word of God to justify ungodly actions. The problem is, is that when you use the word of God without the spirit of God, you always get into trouble and you get it wrong. The circumstances here seem to call for David to act and take vengeance. Counselors were advising David to take vengeance, but what did David do? David refused revenge. He refused to take judgment into his own hands. You see, the question, whenever the circumstances present themselves, are not how will it advance my agenda, but what would the Lord have me to do? See, the problem with us taking vengeance into our own hands anyway is that we never get it right. We mess it up anyway. We don't always get it right. The Lord has a way of taking vengeance. The Lord has a way of getting justice that we can never touch. I'll tell you. Just leave it in his hands. Yes. Leave it in his hands. David's men saw it as an opportunity for revenge. David saw it as an opportunity to show mercy and to prove that his heart was right with God. God was really giving him an answer to his prayer. You remember the prayer over in Psalm 54? Let's see if I can turn there right quick. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 54, we dealt with it last time. 54 and verse 1 this was the remember now this is this is to the chief musician a psalm of david when the ziphims came and said to saul doth not david hide himself with us that is this if you go back and look at chapter 23 this is this very time when he wrote this i, lo I love this about david because you can always most uh, he, he wrote so many psalms the lord inspired him to write so many psalms about the situations he was facing that we know what he's thinking and this is what he said, Save me, O God, by thy name, and judge me by thy strength. God is answering his prayer right here. He's giving David actually a chance to let God answer his prayer instead of David taking it into his own hands. And so instead of full-blown revenge, David cuts off the skirt of Saul's robe that he had apparently laid aside while he took care of his business. I want you to notice something else about David when we're exploring the idea of him being a man after God's own heart. David had a tender heart, a tender heart toward the things of God. Because I want you to see his conviction now. We've seen his temptation. Look at his conviction in verse 5. And it came to pass, this is back in 1 Samuel 24 now, verse 5. It came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And here's what, here's what he was concerned about. He said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise up against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. Look at the conviction 
of his conscience. His conscience bothered him because he had gone in there and cut off this corner of Saul's road. In Psalm 105 and verse 14, David writes, He suffered no man to do them wrong, talking about God. And listen to this, Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes. The context here is he's talking about Israel. And then he says this, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. See, David remembered that Saul was not David, just David's king. And really, David was the king already. God had already removed the kingship from Saul. David was already the king. But in, in, in actual fact, Saul was still reigning and he had been anointed of God. And, and David realized, this is not my king. This is not my place to do this. It's God's anointed. I heard Brother Neil Honing preach one time about not speaking evil of dignitaries. <laughs> because, see, the powers that be are ordained of God. That doesn't mean the person that's in place necessarily is ordained by God. Sometimes uh, the person that's in place is due to our own ignorance as an electorate and we elect the wrong person, Okay. But the powers that be, the position that's there is not ours, but God's. God has ordained the powers that be. He's ordained government to be in, in charge to give us an opportunity really to live peaceably in this present evil world. That's, you know, what's, what's the purpose of government? It's to keep order so that his kingdom can flourish. And I believe that's why America has flourished all through these years. Yeah. Not, not for any other reason than that we have been a haven for the kingdom of God. The churches in America have flourished, whereas they have been persecuted and put down in many ways in the other parts of the world. And so as long as America is, is, uh, is a friendly place for the church of God, I believe, and for the kingdom of God, I believe that, uh, uh, that America will be blessed. But when we quit being uh, open and, and welcoming to the kingdom of God, I believe the Lord will do something different. But my point is this, that's something God has ordained and David said, I'm not going to speak evil. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to do any harm to him because that's God's anointed. Touch not the anointed of God. Let God handle that, you see. It doesn't mean in our situation, by the way, that we don't vote him out. <laughs> that's different. But back then, the way you got rid of a king is you killed him. <laughs> he had to die, see, and someone else take over. And we don't do that, you see. Pray for him, but we don't touch not the, the, uh, uh, the Lord's anointed. And this was an act of disrespect that humiliated Saul. It made him look silly. And David felt remorse for this. He felt remorse for it. And he says, God forbid that I do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. But you know, one thing this was, though, too, is it was proof positive that David didn't intend to kill Saul. It was proof to Saul and to the king that the flatterers in his court were all liars. Look as we continue to see David's vindication here. Verse 8, David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself, showing respect to his position here, you see. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt? Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee, but mine eye spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see the skirt of thy robe in mine hand, for in that I cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in mine hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. 
The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. I want you to notice what David did. First of all, he showed him respect. He said, my Lord, the king. He showed him the respect due to his office. He did not respect the man, but he respected the position and he showed respect under that office. Remember what we said, turn back just briefly to Romans chapter 13. And remember what it says in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but unto evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power, and do that which is good? Uh, and thou shalt, or do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do evil, that which is evil, be afraid. Skip on down, verse 6. He said, For this cause we pay tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom, whom custom is due, uh, and fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. He's just saying this. When you can't respect the man, you still need to respect the office. And that's what David did. He showed respect. He didn't do anything that he shouldn't do. He showed respect. And then he, then he defended himself. And I want to come back to this in a moment, the Lord willing, but, but I want you to notice what he, what he did. He sought reconciliation here. He sought reconciliation and he, he, he defended himself. He pointed out the facts of what really had happened here. He said, listen, Saul, I know they're telling you this. I know you believe I'm your enemy. I know you're, you, they're telling you I'm out to kill you. But I want to show you the facts. And, and notice that the facts were on David's side. That's something important, child of God. No matter the situation, no matter how great your enemy is or how frustrating or aggravating your enemy may be, make sure the facts are always on your side. That is, don't do something that they could hold against you. Don't do something deceitful. Don't do something prideful. Don't fall into sin yourself and try to take matters into your own hands. Do right. People say the end justifies the means. No, it doesn't. In fact, I'll say to you that it's right opposite. The means justifies the end. We must do right in everything. Whether reconciliation ever comes or not, we must always do right. He presented the facts and the facts were on his side. He said, look here, I have this piece of your robe. I could have killed you and I didn't do it. I could have done. He presented the facts to him and thereby he proved his faithfulness. He proved his faithfulness. He did right. He did that which was right. And then he pledged his friendship to him. He said, I'm not your enemy. He said, the Lord judge between you and me. I'm willing to submit my case to the throne room and the judgment halls of heaven. The Lord be my judge. The Lord tell, uh, will be the one to determine whether I'm your friend or not. You look at this. I'm not afraid for my actions to come to light. That's the way we should be, child of God. He pointed to his actions. And in a minute, we're going to see the outcome here. But first of all, as we sort of bring this to a close this morning, let's look at some lessons. Let's look at some lessons from David's encounter with Saul. As we've already said, first of all, we should refuse retaliation. 
refuse vengeance, even when the circumstances seem to call for it. The question is not, do you have opportunity? The question is, what would the Lord have you to do? That's the question. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. You may have, you may have counselors of this world telling you, do it, do it, do it, do it now. See what's, they'll be reasonable, they'll tell you. But refuse retaliation. Refuse vengeance. Even when the circumstances seem to allow for it, and even when counselors of this world advise it. And then, we should always seek reconciliation We should seek reconciliation. And that is a risky proposition, child of God. Let me tell you something. I would much rather be in the midst of a battle fighting with someone than than to be in the position of trying to reconcile with that person. Because there's more risk. You know, when the battle's on and it's heated, you know, you know, you're fighting and you're, you know, if you're in the midst of a battle, you know what's going to happen. You're going to either win or they're going to win. But reconciliation is risky. You know, David risked a lot. He risked the ridicule of his men. Over in uh, chapter 26, it, there's another opportunity here uh, for David to kill Saul. And, uh, and in verse 8, <laughs> Saul is sleeping in, 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 in uh, all of his men around there, and they're in a deep sleep. In chapter 26 and verse 8, Abishai, who is one of David's leaders, he said, God hath delivered thine enemy into thine hand this day. Now therefore let me smite him, I pray thee, with a spear even to the earth at once, and I will not smite him the second time. I think what's happened here is this. <laughs> Abishai said, you know, he's remembering this other time. He's remembering when uh, Saul was in the cave uh, covering his feet and, and David wouldn't touch him. So Abishai says, no, no, here we go again. This guy's not going to kill him again. Let, let me do it. I'll take care of it for you. I'll go do it. He said, this is the Lord delivering him into your hand. And David said to Abishai in verse 9, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him. Or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointing. But I pray thee, take thou the spear that set his bolster in the cruise of water and let us go. He kind of did another little similar thing where he took his spear in the water. But David said, I am not going to take vengeance into my own hands. I don't care what you say. But he risked ridicule. He risked, using the, he risked losing the respect of his men. These were battle-hardened men. They said, you've got to kill him, David. This, is, this time and then the second time, he risked losing their respect. He risked them thinking he's weak. He risked them thinking he was a fool. <laughs> you know, that's what gets me. I hate being played the fool. I hate being thought a fool. I hate being thought that you're too weak to handle this. But you know, Paul said, when I'm weak, then he is strong. Mm-hmm. He is strong. In, in thy weak, my strength, God told Paul, is made perfect in thy weakness. You know what else Paul said? He said, we're fools for Christ's sake. We're fools for Christ's sake. And so I say unto you, child of God, risk reconciling. Because it is a risky proposition. But try it anyway. Is it always going to work out? No. And the other thing you risk, by the way, in trying to reconcile with somebody is the retaliation of that person. You know? I mean, we all... I saw a book. I can't remember exactly what it was called. We, we were over at Barnes & Noble. I think I've been over there a couple of times in the last week. I saw I don't remember if it was yesterday or 
earlier in the week a book that said the book of something like this, the book of perfect comebacks. You know, I like I like those. Don't you like those comebacks? You know, when somebody somebody says something to you, you say, well, you're so so. Then you have that perfect comeback. You just that zinger that you get them. You know, all I could ever think of is, I know you are, but what am I? You know, that kind of thing. Something stupid like that. I can't ever come up with anything better than that myself. I started to get that book. I said, I want those comebacks. That I, but, you know, as I thought about it, I said, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not trying to prove how smart I am or how wise I am, how witty I am. You know, when you, when you come at me and you... You disrespect me and you, you get a zinger on me. It's not my job to come up with a perfect comeback. I like that. My flesh likes that. But it's okay to be a fool. Do you know that? It's okay to look like a fool because we are fools for Christ's sake. Amen. And we're to continue to try to reconcile with those that are our enemies as long as the Lord gives us opportunities. Now that, again, that doesn't mean we're trying to, we're constantly obsessing about it or we're constantly, you know, David wasn't obsessing about it. The only reason he was having to do it is they were chasing him. You know, once he got off into Philistia, and we're going to talk about that in maybe a couple of couple of weeks, something like that. Uh, uh, when he got off into Philistia and Saul quit chasing him, then, uh, you know, he, well, he didn't have Saul on his mind all the time. But as long as they were, Saul was coming at him, uh, he was trying to reconcile with him. And he risked reconciliation. <clears throat> Notice in chapter 24 again, after he does this, verse 16, it came to pass... When David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. I'm, I'm going to tell you my theory, my speculation, and that's all it is, is my speculation. But I believe this. I believe, now this is not speculation. I know Saul was a child of God. Because we're told that Samuel the prophet, who I know was a child of God, when he was conjured up, by the witch of Endor, said, you're going to be with me. I don't believe Saul, I don't believe Samuel's in hell, and I believe he was in heaven, and I believe Saul is in heaven too. He was a child of God. He was just an errant child of God. And as a child of God, I believe his heart was truly pricked here with remorse for what he had been doing to his, his brother, his son, if you will, David. He said, Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said unto David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. <laughs> for if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me and thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swear unto Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men got them up into the hold. I believe Saul was sincere when he said this. Now we're going to find it didn't last long. I want to say to you, I'm, I'm sincere. I've never repented when I wasn't sincere. I've never repented of something when I wasn't sincere. And yes, many times, like a dog to his vomit, I've gone right back. To that thing that I should that I repented from. Saul did the same thing here, but I believe David had proved to him in, in, in such a way that Saul confessed that David will be the next king. And he went on to desire the covenant similar to that which Jonathan uh, had sworn to him. Now, now let, me, let me point one other thing out to you here. Saul, who is chasing David, who has run him all over the country, 
and would kill him if he had a heartbeat, would kill David if he got David in the similar situation that David had Saul. Okay? Saul then says, please swear to me that you're going to do me good, basically. You're going to do my family good when you become king. Now, what's our normal reaction to that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Boy, you got some nerve asking me to do good to you when you're trying to kill me. And you know, sometimes we judge our actions and what we should do in a situation based on what we think the other person would do. So if we did that, you know, if, if, if we were David and we said, when well, I look, and I'm sure his men probably use this as an argument, probably said to him, okay, David, now you know, you know, if Saul got you in this situation, he'd kill you, so you kill him, you know? How many times do we look at it that way? Brethren, that's the flesh talking. You know what David did? David heaped coals of fire on Saul's head. He said, okay, Saul, I'm going to swear to you. Same covenant I made with Jonathan. I'm going to make it with you. I'll not cut off your seed after you, and I won't destroy your name out of, out of your father's house. As we continue reading and studying the life of David, we're going to learn that, uh, that he did just that. Yeah. He took care of it. Oh, the sweetest, one of the sweetest stories in all the Bible that teaches us about the sovereign mercy and grace of God is the story of David and Mephibosheth, who was Saul, uh, Saul's grandson with a little crippled grandson with the two legs that were broken and mangled and they could not get to the palace. David sent for him, and he brought him down to the palace. He, he looked around. He said, is there any of the house of Saul left that I may show him mercy for Jonathan's sake? Oh, what a... If David had been a vengeful man like I often am, we'd have never had that story. He'd have said, when I become king, I'm going to slay every descendant. That's what the kings did back then. If they could, when a new king, a new dynasty took over, they tried to kill every male child, particularly of that previous king. Every descendant, he tried to eliminate his line. Oh, but David. David was a man after God's own heart. And he didn't worry about the actions of Saul or the future goodwill of Saul. He simply forgave him and he treated him right, just like you and I are called upon to forgive our brother and to treat him right. Yes, that sweet story of Mephibosheth, the little crippled boy that could not even uh, come to the palace on his own. You know the story that when, when Saul was slain, eventually, all of the household of Saul fled Jerusalem and the little nursemaid that was carrying the little boy fell and broke his hips or his, his, his legs or something so that he was lame in both his feet. Oh, what a picture of you and I, child of God. What a picture of you and I. None of us, Jesus said, no man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. You know why that is? Because sin had lamed us in both our legs. Not just one. We, you know, most people think we can limp along to the Lord. Uh-uh. This little boy couldn't even limp along. He, had to, he couldn't drag himself. He was in the land of Lodabar, a place where there was no place of famine, a place where there was nothing there to nourish him, a place far away from the castle. And David, who made this covenant here because he was not a vengeful man, he said, I want to show him mercy. So Ziba, the servant, he said, you go fetch him. You go fetch him. I love that. <laughs> you know that you and I had to be fetched by the Holy Spirit? We didn't come to him. We're in a position, as I've said many times, we would not come to him if we could. We could not come to him if we would. 
What a position to be in. But oh, the Lord sends His Holy Spirit to fetch His children out of the land of Lodabar, just like Ziba fetched that little boy. That little boy out of the out of the land where there was no where there was famine, there was nothing for him to be nourished, and he ate continually at the king's table for the rest of his life. You see, you understand that the life of David is not just a story that's good for telling to children, nursery rhyme, that sort of thing. It's something that's good for us to understand. He was a man after God's own heart because he swore to this man who was his enemy that I will have mercy upon your children. I will have mercy upon your descendants. And he fulfilled that. Not because the descendants had anything good in them. They were the, they were the sons of the enemy. They were the descendants of the enemy. But this man after God's own heart, we're told, he made a covenant even to one that was an enemy that he would take care of his posterity and he did that oh David you could have done so differently and the world's um, you know the world's counsel was that you do differently I love those movies where you know some of you uh, I realize I'm getting older and so the Rambo movies aren't as you know aren't as uh, popular as they used to be but I saw one on on one of the stations uh, the other day, Rambo 2, I think it was. Some of you that are my age and a little older remember that that's the one where they were sending Rambo back into Vietnam to, uh, to look for some prisoners of war. Uh, but they really didn't want to find them, and he didn't know that, but he found them. And then just about the time they were going to extract him, uh, they called the helicopter off. They leave him stranded with the POWs in Vietnam. And I was telling, I think it was Ashley, Ashley maybe she's sitting there, and one of the kids you know, said something about what this movie's about. Oh, it's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. This sorry devil over here that's in charge has, has abandoned him and is going to leave him there in Vietnam, but old Rambo is going to kill everybody, and he's going to come out, and he's going to find him. And he, he's, you know, I didn't tell her the end of it, but he doesn't kill him, but, oh, man, I wanted him to so bad. You know, I love those movies. I love that. I love that. Human flesh, you know. I like to see the vengeance taken. But child of God... Imagine this. Imagine that our enemy had taken vengeance on us. You say, preacher, you talking about the devil? No, I'm not talking about the devil. I'm talking about God. Let me tell you something. We read in Romans chapter 5 that when we were yet enemies, do you realize that God in our flesh, in our natural man, God is our enemy? We are His enemy? He's not our enemy because there's something wrong with him. He's our enemy because there's something wrong with us. Imagine if our enemy, if our enemy had said, I'm going to take vengeance and not show mercy. I'm going to destroy them from the face of the earth. He would have been absolutely just and right. But we have been forgiven for Christ's sake. He showed us mercy. And when we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. You understand we're not he didn't die because of something wrong with him. He didn't go to the cross because there was something that he was guilty of. He went to the cross because you and I were guilty. What a blessing it is to know that we have an elder brother who died for us and showed us mercy. We ought to do the same to those that we encounter, to our enemies. May the Lord bless us to understand this and to apply this in our lives in the upcoming weeks and months. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.